Brothers and sisters, let's stand together for the reading of God's Word. Continuing forward in the 23rd chapter of the book of Luke, starting at verse 24. I'll, I'll be reading from verse 24 to verse 46 in our verses of focus. You see underlined there in your notes, verses 26 through 31. Please listen carefully because this is God's holy and infallible Word. So Pilate gave sentence that it should be as they requested, and he released to them the one they requested, who for rebellion and murder had been thrown into prison, but he delivered Jesus to their will. Now as they led him away, they laid hold of a certain man, Simon a Cyrenian, who was coming from the country, and on him they laid the cross that he might bear it after Jesus. And a great multitude of the people followed him, and women who also mourned and lamented him. But Jesus, turning to them, said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For indeed the days are coming in which they will say, Blessed are the barren, wombs that never bore, and breasts which never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things in the green wood, what will be done in the dry? There were also two others, criminals, led with him to be put to death. And when they had come to the place called Calvary, there they crucified him. And the criminals, one on the right hand and the other on the left. Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. And they divided his garments and cast lots, and the people stood looking on. But even the rulers with them sneered, saying, He saved others, let him save himself if he is the Christ, the chosen of God. The soldiers also mocked him, coming and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. And an inscription also was written over him in letters of Greek, Latin, and Hebrew. This is the king of the Jews. Then one of the criminals who were hanged blasphemed him, saying, If you are the Christ, save yourself and us. But the other, answering, rebuked him, saying, Do you not even fear God, seeing you are under the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you, Today you will be with me in paradise. Now it was about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over all the earth until the ninth hour. Then the sun was darkened, and the veil of the temple was torn in two. And when Jesus had cried out with a loud voice, he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. And thus ends the reading of God's word. Amen. 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 Please be seated. So the title of today's sermon is In the Dry Wood. I wonder if you ever find yourself grieving, discouraged, disappointed, finding when you take up Christ's cross to follow Him that it seems like a a dry cross, a dry piece of wood. A life of dryness is something that we all deal with. In today's message, we'll be looking at this text and the idea of being once again filled up with the sap of God's Holy Spirit day by day. Does anyone here desire that in their lives? I think we can all say yes to that. First, we'll look at the setting as Christ is walking from the Praetorium to Golgotha to Calvary. And then we'll see Simon, who is a Cyrenian, and learn some things from him and God's sovereign choice to include him in this story the way that he did. There's a great multitude following Jesus. There are these women 
mourning and lamenting over Christ and his situation. And into that, Jesus turns and speaks this important message for us to understand, teaching them not really to weep for him, but for themselves and for their children and the suffering that would be coming on them during the time of the dry wood. Uh, desolate days were coming upon them. And then kind of some discussion there, what Jesus is pointing us to and comparing the green wood to the dry wood and looking at the cross of the Lord Jesus, cross, Jesus Christ and asking ourselves when we take up our cross, is it uh, one in the context of the Holy Spirit being poured out upon us or not? So some questions to know and to love and to obey God as we hear God's word. So first of all, verse 26, the text says, Now as they led him away. So Jesus begins his walk to the place where he would be crucified. Luke tells us some things that happened to Jesus on his way to the cross. Some things that are a part of this short journey from the Praetorium to Golgotha. First we see the Romans compelling Simon, who is a Cyrenian, to carry Christ's cross. Next, we hear of the great multitude, the mourning women, Christ's reply to the mourning women, and the two criminals are mentioned as well. So this is the scene that we have before us. Pilate's turned them over, turned Jesus over, and the Roman soldiers, and the multitude, these lamenting women, and the two criminals. And off they go, walking through the streets of Jerusalem, some of the journey, and then outside the city walls, some of the journey as well. So here he is, trying to, as we've done before, walk along there, right? Now, you might think of going to the Via Dolorosa and walking through those stations in, in Jerusalem someday, and, and that would be fine, but do bear in mind that much of that is based on tradition, not things that are directly from Scripture. So here Christ is, what do we know? He's with these two robbers, there's soldiers there. There's this great multitude of people who want to come along and watch. And they've, they've departed from this location. It was probably the Fortress Antonia. We don't really know. It could have been possibly Herod's Palace or some other place. But it was just the place where the provincial governor would have his residence while he was there in town. And this is where Pilate had the trial that morning that had just finished. And so they're going along the city streets. You can imagine this early morning day on the... The Passover day, all the people there for the great feast. And they're seeing this man being taken along the streets. Obviously, obviously on his way to crucifixion. Now, the timing is worth pondering. He was crucified during the third hour Jewish time. So sometime between 8 and 9 a.m. the crucifixion began. Jewish time is how Mark uh, reported the time. So counting beginning at 6 a.m. So 6 to 7 a.m. would be the first hour. 7 to 8 a.m. would be the second hour. And 8 to 9 a.m. would be during the third hour. So he was crucified sometime there in that third hour. Now, um, Christ's trial, though, remember, uh, before Pilate had begun between 5 and 6 a.m. Okay, right, right as the sun com comes up, we're told in the text, uh, as, as day is dawning. Uh, but also we're told it's the sixth hour in John. Now that's according to Roman time. John used Roman time when he spoke of hours. And so how does Roman time work? Well, it begins at midnight. So if it's the sixth hour, so like you can see each hour there goes along. So the sixth hour would have been see, zero, one, two, three, between 5 and 6, right? Between 5 and 6 a.m. And so during this time frame, between starting sometime between 5 and 6 a.m. and then ending sometime between 8 and 9 a.m., Jesus goes before Pilate. He is sent to Herod. He comes back to Pilate. And after the public tumult and the debate between Pilate and these raving people who would not listen, remember we looked at that last time, the delusions of the rebellious, Pilate finally gives in because no human resistance to Human rebellion can ever succeed. Pilate gives sentence for Jesus to die and he turns him over. So this is kind of the time frame there. 
If you think about that, that's very fast for such things to occur. Matthew Henry says, We have here the blessed Jesus, the Lamb of God, led as a lamb to the slaughter, to the sacrifice. It is strange with what expedition, so quickness, hastiness, they went through his trial. How they could do so much work in such a little time, though they had so many great men to deal with. And here he's talking about Pilate and Herod. Right? These are leaders. Getting a meeting with leaders is not normally that kind of thing. Attendance on whom is usually a work of time. He was brought before the chief priests at break of day. After that to Pilate, then to Herod, and then to Pilate again. And there seems to have been a long struggle between Pilate and the people about him. He was scourged, and he was crowned with thorns and contumeliously used. And all this was done in four or five hours' time, or six at most. For he was crucified between nine o'clock and twelve. Christ's persecutors resolve to lose no time. Never anyone was so chased out of the world as Christ was. But so he himself said, Yet a little while, and ye shall not see me. And it was a very little while indeed. So then, the first thing we see along this path is Simon. Uh, never heard of him before. And we don't hear of him again. And he's just there for this brief moment in time. And of course, one of the most important events of all of history, this walk, this travel to the cross. They laid hold of a certain man, Simon, a Cyrenian, who was coming from the country, and on him they laid the cross that he might bear it after Jesus. Both Matthew and Mark also mention Simon. John does not, but he speaks of Jesus bearing his own cross, not mentioning Simon. So the way we put that together Uh, One possibility is that Jesus was initially bearing his cross and he was unable to continue. And so they had to get someone else. And of course, no Roman soldier would ever be so shamed to carry a cross. And so they grabbed someone out of the crowd. It's likely this piece of wood, as we discussed before, was a single long piece of wood that he would carry on the shoulders. And then when they would get to the vertical piece that was likely already in the ground. They would raise them up and attach them to that vertical piece to create that cross. There's some debate as to whether it was the T cross or the X cross or whether it's the traditional Christian small T cross. Likely the small T because it gives a place for the sign to go. Um, It makes sense the sign could have gone above Jesus' head. We don't really know for sure from the text. I think it's likely that Simon's blood, excuse me, Christ's blood would have already been on this piece of wood. You think of that, Simon, this, this man we've never heard of before. Blessed to likely come in contact with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. There as he's carrying that piece of wood. Bach says, Jesus goes to his death carrying his own crossbeam. The cross would have been draped across the nape of the neck like carrying a sack on one's back. The crossbeam becomes too heavy for a tired Jesus to carry, and so those leading him conscript Simon of Cyrene to carry it. And only Luke notes that he carried it behind Jesus. And then in a stylistic variation, Luke uses this Greek word to indicate that the soldiers seized Simon, while Matthew and Mark use forms of the more legally technical word, which means to commandeer. So apparently they had some sort of legal authority in Roman law to do what they did. All the synoptics mention Simon of Cyrene, but only Mark adds that he is the father of Rufus and Alexander. Not just that he has two sons, but we get the names of his two sons, which might suggest that the sons were well-known believers, perhaps the same Rufus mentioned in Romans chapter 16, verse 13. The region of Cyrene, in what is now Tripoli, is mentioned in three places in the book of Acts, as we'll go through. We'll see that, chapter 6, 11, and 13 of Acts. So this is a a region that is known to the Jews. So Simon, a man we haven't heard of, with family roots in northern Africa, perhaps he had traveled from Cyrene, or maybe he was just known to be from Cyrene. It could be either. So that's modern-day Libya. He finds himself in the midst of this cosmos-changing event. 
He has two sons, and they're both named for us by Mark, Rufus and Alexander. We don't know why he was there at that time, but reasonable speculation would be that he's present as a part of the Passover celebration. He himself is a Jew, that he's there as a worshiper or as a merchant trading with the crowds of Jewish worshipers. We don't really know for sure, but his name certainly is, sounds like he's probably Jewish. So he's suddenly brought onto the stage of history. He carries Christ's cross, likely because Christ needed help. So this man makes his way into this story before us only because of the cross. The only thing that we know of Simon is his connection with the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. We see God's sovereignty in Simon's life to bless him as the man who would help Jesus with his cross. I want us to see also Christ's humanity, his humility in his physical weakness. Brothers and sisters, Jesus Christ was and is a man. He, he experienced everything in this life that we have experienced except sin. Every single external temptation that everyone has ever experienced, Jesus experienced. Every form of emotional, mental, and physical weakness and weariness as a human being, Jesus experienced. He is our elder brother, and he was raised up from the dead, and he now reigns, and he strengthens us as our high priest, who is able to sympathize with us, knowing personally everything that we go through. Calvin says, This circumstance points out the extreme cruelty both of the Jewish nation and of the soldiers. There's no reason to doubt that it was then the custom for malefactors to carry their own crosses to the place of punishment. But as the only persons who were crucified were robbers, who were men of great bodily strength, they were able to bear such a burden. It was otherwise with Christ, so that the very weakness of his body plainly showed that it was a lamb that was sacrificed. Perhaps, too, in consequence of having been mangled by scourging and broken down by many acts of outrage, he bent under the weight of the cross. Now, the evangelists relate that the soldiers constrained a man who was a peasant and of mean rank to carry the cross because that punishment was reckoned so detestable that every person thought himself polluted if he only happened to put his hand to it. But God ennobles his heralds, by his heralds, the man who was taken from the lowest dregs of the people to perform a mean and infamous office. For it is not a superfluous matter that the evangelist not only mentions his name, Simon, but informs us also about his country and his children by name. Nor can there be any doubt that God intended by this preparation to remind us, now listen, that we are of no rank or estimation in ourselves, and that it is only from the cross of his Son that we would derive any eminence or renown. Is that true for you? Is that how you approach life? So this great multitude follows along. Verse 27, it says, A great multitude of the people followed him. So she should be a part of your walking along with Jesus. You can hear the voices of the people. You can hear them aghast at the moments that are taking place. This is a fuller description of the setting. They're watching him on his way to death. Certainly some of them, as we'll see later, were continuing in their hearts to mock him and sneer at him. There were likely others who were his silent followers who went along with him. And they were watching from a distance and everything in between. Curious, having not taken a position yet. Wherever you are in your life, you could have been represented by one of the people in this crowd there that day. And so the question comes, you know, how do you look at Jesus Box says the trail of people behind Simon consists of two groups. It is not clear why the first group, the multitude of people, follows Jesus. Most likely consisting of both Jerusalemites and pilgrims, they are naturally curious to see what becomes of him. So they're all following along. So it's a big crowd. 
All of Jerusalem would have known of Christ's crucifixion. This didn't happen in a corner without very many witnesses. This was a rapidly expanding story. The news would have spread quickly, not only because of all the people, but because of Jesus Christ himself and how well known he was. This large multitude would quickly spread the word of his death throughout the region. So what we see happening next gets our attention. And women who also mourned and lamented him. So within this multitude, there's this group that stands out. Women are mourning and lamenting Christ's suffering. At least they stand out to Jesus. But then after he turns and speaks to them, certainly they stand out to everyone. Bach says the second group consists of women who are doing these two things. They're publicly beating their breasts and they're lamenting. This is wailing. So this beating of breasts refers to literally beating to the, of the breast in grief. Uh, and it's used elsewhere in the Gospels in the same sense. And this other word for lamenting refers to verbal mourning or even singing a dirge aloud. Both terms occur together in Josephus for the mourning associated with Saul's death. So these women are very sad, displaying it in their behavior. They, they're, they're crushed by what is happening to Jesus Christ. And they're expressing it in a way that is perceptible by Christ and the crowd. Bach says about this, nowhere in the synoptics are women hostile to Jesus. This tendency and the nature of Jesus' address to the women suggests that they are not full sympathizers, that their mourning is not merely customary, and that they are not mere literary symbols. What we may have here are women who regret that the circumstances unfortunately led to this painful execution, which suggests that not all opposition to Christ is hard opposition. Some of the people are not as hostile as the leaders have been against Jesus. We know these women don't really understand the situation in which they find themselves. And so their mourning and lamenting is commendable, but it is, it is short-sighted. It's very limited. It's very blurred. They're not really seeing what matters. So Jesus turns and he speaks to the daughters of Jerusalem. The text tells us, verses 28 through 31, Jesus, turning to them, said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For indeed, the days are coming in which they will say, Blessed are the barren, wombs that never bore, and breasts which never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things in the green wood, what will be done in the dry? It was always considered a curse to be barren and a curse to be covered and killed in an earthquake. The times will be so desolate that they would desire such things. What is meant by daughters of Jerusalem? Christ's response is what he says. He says, daughters of Jerusalem. To whom is he speaking? Bach says, freed from carrying the cross beam, Jesus turns to gently address those following him. These women of the capital of Israel represent the nation. So he's not just speaking to those women there. He responds to them, but his response extends out to all the women of the nation of that time, thus to the entire nation. And his first words to them, Do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. Our Lord teaches these women that they have yet to understand His message. They have yet to perceive their own danger and the danger of their generation. His multiple warnings during His public ministry have yet to register. You know that we have looked at that as we have gone through the book of Luke. And so much of what He was saying was a warning specific to the nation of Israel at that time. These women and their children are facing terrible terrors and sufferings in their own future. Their mourning and their lamentation for Christ, yes, it is commendable. But more importantly, they need to see the coming destruction of Israel. I'm going to read Luke 21 to us again and 
ask that we're going to, when we get to it, read it aloud together. And essentially the question to these women is which group are you in? As, you, as we read through Luke 21, you'll see there's different groups that Jesus is addressing. Daughters of Jerusalem, which group will you be in? Calvin says, some have thought that the women are reproved because foolishly and inconsiderately they poured out tears to no purpose. On the contrary, Christ does not simply reprove them as if it were improperly and without a cause that they were weeping, but warns them that there will be far greater reason for weeping on account of the dreadful judgment of God which hangs over them, as if he had said that his death was not the end but the beginning of evils to Jerusalem and to the whole nation. And in this way he intimates that he was not abandoned to the wickedness of man in such a manner as not to be the object of divine care. The dry wood time is coming where wrath apart from mercy will be experienced. Desolate days are coming, he tells them. Verses 29 and 30, when they will say that they are blessed to be barren and then when they will flee hiding in panic. For indeed the days are coming in which they will say, blessed are the barren wombs that never bore and breasts which never nursed Remember what we heard about Judas? It would have been better for him that he had never been born. That is what is coming for them. Brothers and sisters, those of us in Christ, in the green, under the moisture of the Spirit, we never suffer this way. We never have to suffer this way. We never do suffer this way because he never leaves us. He never forsakes us. But their coming suffering, Jesus was pointing them to a time. See, they were mourning for him, but he knew his father, even though he was going to be under the torment of the infinite torment of the wrath of God, the fire of God drying him out completely. He knew the greenness would return. He knew his father would vindicate him. He knew that the spirit that he released to his father would be taken and restored to a green body, a body filled with life. He knew that was coming for him, but not for them. It would be so severe that they will wish that they had never given birth to any children. The suffering will be multiplied by their lack of hope in the midst of this suffering. The suffering itself will be so terrible that they'll wish that they'd never been born, that their children had never been born, and all the joys of being a mom, they'll wish they'd never experienced them. And in the midst of that kind of suffering, it'll be multiplied. It'll be doubled because they'll have no hope. And they'll want to flee. That's what happens next. You just, you just want to scream and run away, run anywhere than where you are, but there's no escape. That's the message of trying to get an earthquake to fall on you or the hills to roll over on top of you, is that they're, they're doing business with the reality that there's no place to escape. There is no hope. No reliable protectors when the flood of this destruction arrives upon them. In their future terror, when Rome comes, they will be desperate, hoping to be under falling mountains and covering hills instead of where they are at that time. So Jesus tells them, this isn't what you see here, really, this is the green time. This isn't so bad. Jesus says, for if they do these things in the green wood, what will be done in the dry? So beastly Rome has not risen up to its worst dryness yet. Apostate Israel has not risen up to its worst wickedness yet. And if they're willing to do this to evil Jesus, do this evil to Jesus now, how bad will it be when things worsen? So let's read, if you don't mind opening your pew Bibles. We'll just read this together. Verses 5 through 36 in Luke chapter 21. And you'll see I've underlined the verses there, verse 20 through 27 and a few others. And you'll see these are the people Jesus is talking about. So he's, he's walking on his way to the cross, but his words take us back to these prior warnings. <clears throat> verses 5 through 36. And they're in your sermon notes as well. Then as some spoke altogether, then as some spoke of the temple, how it was adorned with beautiful stones and donations, he said, 
These things which you see, the days will come in which not one stone shall be left upon another that shall not be thrown down. So they asked him, saying, Teacher, but when will these things be? And what sign will there be when these things are about to take place? And he said, Take heed that you not be deceived. For many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and the time has drawn near. Therefore do not go after them. But when you hear of wars and commotions, do not be terrified. For these things must come to pass first, but the end will not come immediately. Then he said to them, Nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be great earthquakes in various places, and famines and pestilences, and there will be fearful sights and great signs from heaven. But before all these things, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons. You will be brought before kings and rulers for my name's sake. But it will turn out for you as an occasion for testimony. Therefore, settle it in your hearts not to meditate beforehand on what you will answer. For I will give you a mouth and wisdom which all your adversaries will not be able to contradict or resist. You will be betrayed even by parents and brothers, relatives and friends, and they will put some of you to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But not a hair of your head shall be lost. By your patience possess your souls. Okay, stop. So that is Jesus teaching his disciples. Teaching those who are his followers. Teaching those who are under his grace and under his mercy. And even though they'll put to death, their souls will not be lost. And that they know that ultimately any loss in his arms is gain. You see, these are those who are more than conquerors. That's who he's talking to first there. But now, note the transition and see who he's talking about next. Verse 20, altogether. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation is near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let those who are in the midst of her depart. And let not those who are in the country enter her. For these are the days of vengeance, that all things which are written may be fulfilled. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. For there will be great distress in the land and wrath upon his people, this people, and they will fall by the edge of the sword and be led away captive into all nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled by Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles are fulfilled. And there will be signs in the sun, in the moon, and in the stars, and on the earth distress of nations and perplexity, the sea and the waves roaring men's hearts failing them from fear and the expectation of those things which are coming on the earth. For the powers of heaven will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and glory and great glory. Now, so you see that. There's a group of people that Jesus is telling them about who are, if they don't repent, they're going to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. And they're going to be experiencing this great wrath. Now moving on. Verse 28. Now when these things begin to happen, look up and lift up your heads because your redemption draws near. Then he spoke to them a parable. Look at the fig tree and all the trees. When they are already budding, you see and know for yourselves that summer is now near. So you also, when you see these things happening, Know that the kingdom of God is near. Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all things take place. Okay, stop. Again. So you see, there's those who are going to be under this punishment and those who are not. And the fig tree 
parable says it's coming in, in this generation. And so when these daughters of Jerusalem are mourning and lamenting over Jesus, they've yet to get this message. They don't realize that there's need for repentance and following Jesus and joining in with His people to be under His mercy and under His grace. They don't understand this yet. Going on, verse 33. Heaven and earth will pass away, but My words will by no means pass away. But take heed to yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with carousing, drunkenness, and cares of this life, and that day come on you unexpectedly. For it will come as a snare on all those who dwell on the face of the whole earth. Watch therefore and pray always that you may be counted worthy to escape all these things that will come to pass and to stand before the Son of Man. So the daughters of Jerusalem, he's speaking to the women of the nation of Israel. And if they remain connected to apostate Israel, they will experience its judgment upon themselves and their children. Bach says, Jesus is suggesting that the nation is headed for difficult times, an allusion to the events of A.D. 70. Families will suffer great pain. The thought of the nation's pain has not left Jesus. As he dies, Jesus thinks of the fate of others. Jesus' woe is like that in Jeremiah 9. The nation is accountable for its rejection. Other Lucan texts show that all groups in the nation experience the pain of this judgment. You can look up those verses. You can see the whole nation is subject to this. Jesus tells the women to weep for Israel as he had done in chapter 19, verse 41, as he was coming in to the city. For if they do these things in the greenwood, what will be done in the dry? So who is the they? Well, for this text, it's Rome and apostate Israel. Those who are not under the Holy Spirit of God, not receiving the river of life from God's throne, having not been baptized in the forgiving power of the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in today's world, there are similar things taking place. We see this in the way that our civil leaders rule, and we see this, unfortunately, in much of the misled church as well. And we need to hear the message too, don't we? Daughters of Jerusalem, weep for yourselves. What group are you in? What group are we in? What group is this church in? Where will you find yourself if God does not have mercy on this nation? Maybe He will. We don't know the future, do we, brothers and sisters? Now this word wood, we want to look at that. It's that which was made of wood, but there's more to it. It's as a beam from which one is suspended. It's a gibbet, a cross. A log or timber with holes in it which the feet, hands, or neck of prisoners were inserted and fastened with thongs. It has to do with a cudgel, a stick, or a staff, a fetter, a shackle, a tree even. So, with Simon and the two robbers there in this scene bearing the gibbet on their necks, there's this wood right there in view. In the midst of the walk to his great suffering on the tree, Jesus turns and speak to the morning, speaks to the mourning women, the lamenting women, about this cross, this tree, this gibbet, in response to their wailing. What about green wood? Green means, this word means damp, moist, wet, full of sap. It means green. So the beautiful and shocking idea here is that Christ's cross is filled with life. That piece of wood with His blood upon it God has ordained that it would bring to us life by His death upon that piece of wood. On that morning in Jerusalem in the valley of the shadow of death, Jesus points to His cross of death, His coming unfathomable suffering. That piece of wood, in a sense, is moist, it's wet, it's sap-filled, 
green, bursting with life, certainly spiritually. While he would be dried out completely by the fire of God, his cross is life to us. He is life to us. So the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, moist with life, eternal from the river of life, comes through his cross to us. This is suffering in the river of redemption, never with despair. This is what Jesus was referencing about his own death and also about everything that we experience in our lives when we take up this cross and follow him. This word dry means deprived of the natural juices, shrunk, wasted, withered. You've seen those where you check to see if a tree is alive. What do you do? You know, you can kind of bend the limb. It just snaps right off. It's dry. It crumbles in your fingers. Is, is that how your soul feels? I mean, that's a question for each one of us. And, of course, the greatest danger would be that you're outside of Christ. You've not been born again. For the nation of Israel and for all who reject Christ, there's this dryness of suffering that awaits them. And it's, it's an empty suffering. For no, with no personal redemption, it is simply the suffering of receiving the justice upon your soul that you deserve. No hope, only despair, forever wishing to have never been born, forever wishing for escape and never finding it. So we rejoice, don't we, brothers and sisters? Jesus Christ, our Lord, He experienced this. Jesus was on the cross, in a sense, wishing He had never been born. Jesus was on the cross with no place to escape. That's what He went through for us. And so we rejoice, do we not? That we suffer, always drinking from the river of life. No matter what comes our way, Jesus said, I will never leave you or forsake you. And no matter what kind of mountains of pain may be falling down upon you in your life, the river of God from the throne of God is always yours by faith in Christ. Always. And mine, ours together. So that's the contrast there. Green wood, dry wood, taking a look at your life. So a few questions quickly for us. I like how Calvin describes Simon as ennobled by the green wood of Christ's cross. Of course, I added the phrase green wood. But he's ennobled, right, by Christ's cross. And there's really nothing else about this man that we're told. So from whence comes your eminence and renown? How do you want to be remembered? Is it good enough? That your life would just be remembered as one connected with the cross. Is that good enough? Amen. So, take that question to heart. Let's examine ourselves in light of that question. Would you be content to be known only in connection with the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ? And everything else forgotten about you. You ever imagine what might go on your tombstone? Maybe some good ideas that come from this, right? But God blessed old Simon to even have his hometown and his kids mentioned. So, from whence comes the sap, the moisture, the water of life for us as we take up Christ's cross, the cross that he's called us to take up. Take up your cross and follow me daily. How are we indeed made partakers of this cross, of this life that comes to us? We abide in Christ. We abide in Christ. He, his life flows to us day by day by union with him. And this is a mystery, brothers and sisters. You, you can't go to the auto parts store and find the right piece to fix this. You can't change your diet enough to make this happen. You know, you, you can't be self-disciplined enough to ensure this. 
Jesus says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Of course, he, he said this to them the very night before. So here he is standing in the street, pointing to himself as the source of life for these poor women and their children in danger. And the very night before, he said to his disciples, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Here's the moisture of life. Here's the sap of life. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. So when we suffer, it's a pruning kind of suffering. With fruitfulness, when things in our lives are cut off, it's for good. Those outside of Christ, it's a withering kind of thing. It's a cutting off unto burning. You are already clean because of the word which I spoke to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. So, I want us to understand that we are participants in this life only through union with the Lord Jesus Christ. And this comes to us by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Where God in His kindness to us gives us faith to believe in Jesus Christ. To see ourselves as these empty branches who can do nothing apart from Him. Who see ourselves deserving no renown, no eminence, but instead deserving the opposite. He gives us faith to see the truth about ourselves and and about what Jesus has done for us. We trust in the cross of Christ and, and, and God does this by giving His Spirit to us. When we have faith in Jesus Christ, it is never separate from the presence of the Holy Spirit of God. Faith and, and the Holy Spirit should kind of be synonymous in your mind. This is how God does it. Drinking down His life, the sap of Christ within us by the outpouring of the Holy Spirit of God. What season of the life of the church are we in right now? Somebody say it out loud. What season in the life of the church? This long season. It's at the first page of your um, liturgy right there at the top. The eighth Sunday of. And what is Pentecost? Thank you very much, Quentin. What is Pentecost all about? What happened at Pentecost? The Holy Spirit of God was poured out in mighty power upon the believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. Did that stop on that day? Or does it continue? Does our great King in His kindness continue from His throne in this great age of Pentecost? When you look at the church calendar, what's the longest portion of the church calendar? Pentecost. What's the longest phase of this age since Christ has been enthroned? It's the age of Pentecost. It is the age of the outpouring of His Holy Spirit upon us. It is the age of the moistening of the earth. It is the age of the baptism of the Holy Spirit upon this globe greater than the flood of Noah. That's the age you live in and that I live in. And He's doing it in you and through you. And you are a part of this epic moisture. The dew from heaven day after day in our souls, in us and through us. Is this your life experience? Do you walk by the Spirit? Do you find yourself growing in Christ? Do you see the joy of the Lord in your life? Well, I want to read a a scripture to you that's so simple that you're you're just going to think, well, of course. But then I'm going to ask you a question to go with it, and I wonder what your answer will be. So, here's the scripture. And... uh, Opening my Bible here for us, getting to it. It's in Ephesians. If you want to turn there with me, you can. Um, excuse me, Luke. I'll get to Ephesians. It's in Luke chapter 11, verses 9 through 13. It's on page 1605 in your pew Bible if you want to look at it while I read it. So I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, it will be opened. If a son asks for bread from any father among you, will he give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will he give him a serpent instead of a fish? 
Or if he asks for an egg, will he offer him a scorpion? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? I know that, Dr. Clark. Pastor, we're aware of that. We all knew that before we got here. Well, when's the last time that you asked your Holy Holy Father, Father in heaven to give you the Holy Spirit? I mean, practical question, very practical. When was the last time you prayed and you asked your Father in heaven to give you his Holy Spirit? Because this is the life of abiding. This is the daily life. And, and do you think your Father in heaven is reluctant, folding his arms, like, well, maybe today I will, maybe I won't? He who gave us his only Son, will he not also with him freely give us all things? So even by the end of this sermon today, we will all be rejoicing because we're all going to ask God in faith to give us His Holy Spirit today and to more live in that abiding life in Jesus Christ. Amen? So will He give us His Holy Spirit if we ask? Will He? Yes, He will. Yes, He will. He delights to. Did, did, he, did he pour out His wrath upon His Son? To, to withhold a little bit of, eh, you know, disapproval towards us as our Father in Heaven? Or did He completely eliminate all of our sins so that when He sees us, He sees Christ? He delights to pour out His Spirit upon us. But what if Christ's cross feels like dry wood to you in your life? Pastor, I've heard these things, I know these words, but... It just feels like dry wood to me. I'm going to leave. I'm going to go home. I'm going to pray. I'm going to get in the same rut that I've been in. If that's true for you. Well, I have two things to consider, and they're both kind of in the same category. If you want to turn with me to uh, Ephesians chapter 4, and we'll look at verses 25 through 32, and I want you to look in there and guess which scripture I'm really going to, you know, we need the surrounding scripture, but as, we're re- as I'm reading it to you, What am I putting my finger on here for you to consider in your life? So Ephesians chapter 4, verses 25 through 32. In your pew Bible, it's 1799 if you want to read along. Therefore, putting away lying, let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath, nor give place to the devil. Let him who stole steal no longer, but rather let him labor, working with his hands what is good that he may have something to give him who has need. Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification, that it may impart grace to the hearers. A lot about sanctification there, right? A lot about being changed and obeying God's law and loving the Lord and loving our neighbors. Verse 30, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Going on about sanctification. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice, and be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. So perhaps in your life, if taking up your cross and following Christ is like dry wood for you, perhaps you have grieved or are grieving the Holy Spirit in your life some way. All right, next. We'll go over to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, and we'll look at verses 12 through 24, and that's on page 1815 of your pew Bible, and I'll bet when you listen that you can also guess which scripture we're going to focus on. And we urge you, brethren, to recognize those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake. Be at peace among yourselves. Now we exhort you, brethren, warn those who are unruly. Comfort the faint-hearted, uphold the weak, be patient with all. See that no one renders evil for evil to anyone, but always pursue what is good both for yourselves and for all. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, in everything give thanks, and for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the Spirit. Do not despise prophecies, test all things, hold fast what is good. 
Abstain from every form of evil. Now may the God of peace Himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful, who also will do it. So, maybe if there's dryness in your life, lack of desire to draw near to God, a life that doesn't feel at all ever joyful, that this command to rejoice sounds like nonsense to you, maybe it's because you are grieving and or quenching the Holy Spirit by resisting sanctification in your life at a, at a particular spot. Maybe. Now, of course, I already mentioned to you one other reason. Maybe you don't understand who God is and what Christ has done for you. And you think that God is some, still some disapproving father who has to get his ounce of flesh out of you before he's going to pour his spirit out upon you. Right? You have to be disabused of that false thinking about who God is. But even thinking properly about God, believing that He loves you like that, you can get into a form of living where you're quenching and grieving the Holy Spirit. All of us can. And so what this gets at is is a persistent unwillingness to listen to God's Word and what He says to us about sanctification. Because the legend on the map is God's law. That's how He teaches us, is through His Word to us. And so, may God bless each one of us, each of our families and our church, to be sanctified and to be that supple branch in in His hands, filled with the humble sap poured into us by the Holy Spirit of God, to promptly and fully offer ourselves to God in whatever He says to us in His Word. And to immediately obey Him. Immediately repent of whatever His Word says to us. And you see all these ways that were described in 1 Thessalonians 5 and in Ephesians 4. Things having to do with how we live towards God and how we live towards others. The way we speak. Whether we are tender-hearted people who forgive or not. You'll see the text. It's loving the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And loving our neighbor as ourselves. Learning from his word more and more each day how to do so. And saying yes and amen as he teaches us. So our pride is really what gets in the way so often. We don't want to change. And this can lead to a life of dryness. That dry wood life. So may God deliver each one of us from this. May we see who the Lord really is to us as our Heavenly Father who forgives us in Christ. And may we gladly submit ourselves to Him and all of His Word. And and no longer in any way, especially persistently, quench or grieve His Spirit. But quickly repent and grow up in Christ. Amen. Amen. Almighty and gracious Heavenly Father, We do desire, Lord God, each day to abide in Christ. And we do together now, with faith towards you, O God, ask you to give us your Holy Spirit, to pour out your Holy Spirit upon each one of us and all of the families of Foothills, everyone present today and everyone not present. We pray, Lord God, that you would do the same for your church, that you would cause your people in the earth to rise up lift up their hearts and hands to you and ask you to give your Holy Spirit. And that you would indeed, O God, bless us, your people, with the outpouring of your Spirit upon us, that we would abide in Christ, that we would receive from you your great love and kindness, that we would treasure your holiness, and that we would embrace sanctification the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, whose precious blood has cleansed us from all of our sin, redeeming unto yourself, O God, your precious bride, your church, your people, in whom and through whom you are working now and throughout history, demonstrating your great power to crush our flesh 
and to bring forth the life of Christ in and through each of us. We gladly give ourselves to you for your glory, for your name's sake, to accomplish this very real work of grace, your sanctification in each of our lives, in our families, in this church, and in your church over the whole world. All for your glory. In Jesus' name.